alignment of the left and the right is something we talk about a lot on this podcast as we think through and try to make sense of the current moment. This political shakeup is producing new politics, new alignments, and new conversations. To keep up with the pace, Lean Out is now expanding to two episodes a week, so we're better able to document these developments in real time. I'll still be interviewing an author every week, but now I will also be interviewing a journalist about a newly published piece that's making waves in the culture. This week we ask, what happens when a man of the right hits a leftist labor conference? We'll be discussing a provocative piece titled, What the Right Doesn't Get About the Labor Left. Sarab Amari is a founder and editor of Compact Magazine, a new radical American journal. He's a prominent conservative commentator and the author of several nonfiction books, including The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. Sarab Amari is my guest today on Lean Out. Rob, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. We're going to talk about your reporting on the recent Labor Notes conference in Chicago, but first, give us some context here. We've seen this wave of union organizing in the States, including Mm -hmm. the Amazon labor union, Starbucks employees. Paint a picture for us on the moment the U.S. is in when it comes to the labor movement. Um. Well, we're seeing this, as you said, this it's called a strike wave, but it's really should be called a strike and organizing wave where you've had unusually high labor organizing activities, both you know, new unions like the ones you mentioned at um, Amazon and, and many, many Starbucks stores are at various stages of the process. And we could talk about that process has become incredibly difficult over the past few decades as a result of government efforts to, um, government essentially helping capital, make it harder for workers to unionize. But at any rate, you have this in shops that were unheard of as unionization sites. Um, Unions themselves, kind of established industrial unions were probably caught by surprise. But also at at already existing unionized shops, longshoremen, food production workers, Kellogg's, et cetera, you're seeing a new wave of, let's say, militancy, where people aren't settling for, for example, two-tiered systems where older workers get more job security, but younger younger ones who come in have to accept less security, lower wages, et cetera. Um, the numbers are still relatively small compared to the first five decades, first half of the 20th century, when you had the real kind of militancy of the early 20th century, and then after the passage of the Wagner Act, you had a situation where union density reached, you know, 30% of, of the labor force that's now declined down to about 10% in the private economy. So it's not quite anywhere close to that, but it's it's still remarkable. And to just to wrap it up, I think that in, in terms of you mentioned what the context is, the context is in part, you have had various labor shortages throughout the system, right, throughout the economy. And so that that gives workers the upper hand. Um, a lot of workers can afford to look elsewhere in terms of other opportunities, better wages. But it also means that if they do want to get into an organizing battle, they're better positioned than they might have been before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And, and just for listeners who may not be familiar, just set this up. What is Labor Notes? 
So Labor Notes is a massive gathering of uh, union activists and pro-labor writers, thinkers, et cetera, held every other year. So the last iteration would have been 2020, but that was the peak of the pandemic, so it was canceled. So 2022 is the kind of makeup session. And so you had 4,000 activists descend on Chicago. Mm, and yourself, a man of the right, also in the mix. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you observe both traditional leftist organizing, pursuing sort of the old left's material aspirations, but then you also saw what you refer to as lifestyle leftism. In this particular case, COVID yep. theater pronouns, highly racialized politics. These two forces were a little less at odds than I would have expected. And your piece, uh, you're arguing that just because the vanguard labor organizing is being done by wokes, it does not delegitimize their claims, which is that workers are in a terrible position right now. And that it would be a big mistake to write off the labor left as quote, one more bastion of toxic wokeness. Walk mm -hmm. me through your thinking. Wow, that was a, this is a beautiful summary. <laughs> um, yeah, so. Yeah, so first of all, let me just sort of give you, give you the atmosphere and imagine me, I mean, I'm, I used to be a leftist, you know, in, in my college days, I was a, I was a Trotskyist and a member of a little group where I spent my Saturdays, you know, hawking socialist newspapers and so forth. This was a different atmosphere than that. I have to, I mean, in other words, there has been a genuine transformation of the left where when, you know, you show up, you know, the, the masking rules, the, um, you have to get you get a pronoun sticker for your lanyard, uh, all this sort of stuff that you can expect and, you know, good number of sessions that are devoted to, let's say, kind of de-policing causes, um, you know, labor and race, labor and race is a kind of a recurring session. And so that's that's genuinely, a you know, a thing that people have observed. And one interesting sociological observation that I couldn't help making is that there was there were important kind of um occupational sectoral differences in terms of who abided by the kind of new ideology right the the woke stuff for lack of a better term even though i whatever that that may mean a lot a lot of different things to different people but basically like if you look at like burly teamsters of any race they can be black white whatever teamsters carpenters electricians etc they definitely were less likely to have the pronouns on their lanyards than, let's say, younger workers who are either public sector unions or trying to organize the new service employees. Those tend to have like they, them pronouns and, you know, uh, many, many a session, you know, some organizer or even just like a Starbucks employee who's active would get up and say, you know, hi, I'm not taking off my mask, but I'll try to speak loudly. And I go by they, them. But if you want, you can also use he, she, sometime, I can't remember, you know, whatever, but like it was a sort of kind of like obviously, obviously very saturated with this stuff. But nevertheless, and sort of to make the argument of the piece, that, um, the argument of the piece is really a polemic against the right and specifically the new right. As you know, there's this sort of tendency, it's it's gotten, it's, it's, it's attained the moniker, the new right in the past two, three years. Um, it's represented on the electoral side, obviously, by the sort of rise of the Trump movement, and on the intellectual side, frankly, by people like myself and um, you know Patrick Deneen and Adrian Vermeule and others, signatories of this statement in First Things called "Against the Dead Consensus," and in, and and there are many different movements within the new right, um, but one 
distinct strand that, by the way, that's not represented by Deneen, Vermeule, and the like, who are, I think, very sharp on this, but a little bit more, let's say, a déclassé version of it that is now interested in class issues and uh, worker issues, but only in a kind of very superficial cultural way. So in other mm -hmm. words, the problem is woke capital. Why is Disney telling my kid that they should, that my kid should transition? Um, and by the way, I'm troubled by that too. I don't, I don't want Disney propagandizing gender ideologies to my kids, but, but it stops there. It doesn't notice, for example, what the, the actual kind of connect, what's the nexus between that kind of ideology and the kind of the relations of production that sustain companies like Disney and other companies in, in, uh, in a position of social dominance. And it looks at the labor movement sympathetically insofar as they look like burly teamsters, but it looks at other kinds of organizing cadres and stuff and he just, and, and, and dismisses them as basically, you know, members of the professional managerial class, adjunct professors and other people. And so I argue that that's not the case. First of all, you know, many of these people are in the educated precariat. So they're part mm. of the bottom 90%. They, they've attained degrees, but those degrees aren't, um, haven't helped them achieve any measure of social stability, mm -hmm. um, which makes them a very kind of angry class. And um, second of all, I mean, insofar as they have claims about lack of healthcare, wages, et cetera, those are, those are just claims. They, they don't become less just claims because the, they wear, rainbow lanyards as much as I kind of smirk I might smirk at rainbow lanyards so that's the kind of I'm trying maybe to and I'm thinking out loud here trying to like kind of bifurcate the issues mm -hmm. where it's mm -hmm. like you yes you do have like some wokeism in the labor movement there's no denying that but kind of the material issues in the economy are worth considering and these claims are worth taking seriously mm. and as you say I mean if people are interested in advancing the cause of labor rights, they are not going to a uh, new right gab fest. They are still going to the old labor movement, right? Right. And also, I mean, I should, we should make it clear, and, and I say this in the piece, um, I will be using my my the, most of my reported material for a book I'm writing right now. So mm -hmm. I didn't really, I did a lot of interviews, but I didn't really use all of them for this particular piece. But if you go to the actual sessions, the vast majority aren't like, let us now bow before Robin D'Angelo thought, <laughs> right? It's it's still about the threat posed by private equity to the real economy, right? Private private equity and hedge funds extracting value out of the real economy into the financial economy, essentially kind of a parasitic role in, in or it's about gigification and how dangerous that is to all workers' rights um, to, to transform every every job ultimately as much as possible using technology into a kind of irregular arrangement without any of the 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 benefits the solidarity the stability that you ever expected from what what it means to be in the workplace in the 20th century in the workforce in the 20th century etc cetera, etc cetera. and these are they were perfectly legitimate claims and i i don't i don't think they are being addressed with nearly as much passion or attention on the new right and on the new right, too often when you hear talk about labor, it's this kind of cultural thing. Like I said, it's 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 at the level of why is Brooks Brothers, you know, paying obeisance to Black Lives Matter, you know, and this shows you how capital is sinister and so forth. But then it never gets to the question questions about pension and pay and healthcare, et cetera. Mm. Now I I saw how this was received on woke Twitter. 
because I have mm-hmm. Twitter. How was it received by the new right? Uh, it's I mean, I mean, first, certainly a lot of my my friends um, tweeted it. Uh, so, for example, there's a guy named not say it should my friends, but the kind of broader new right. There's a guy named Patrick Brown who works at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. I've been very critical of the Ethics and Public Policy Center for many reasons. Um, nevertheless, you know, Patrick said this is a very good piece. And yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly sort of woke labor Twitter was kind of mad and I enjoyed that reaction, right? That's you sort of, because I gave them a portrait of themselves in a way that they really couldn't, exp- you know, to, for someone like me to show up at labor modes and then kind of report on it in a very personal way and kind of in a self-deprecating way because the, mm. the piece begins with this encounter with this sort of like ferocious socialist labor lawyer. And, you know, she's basically like, you know, you don't belong here <laughs> and, and is unremitting in that. Um, it was fun, right? And that got, uh, I would say on the left, it got mixed to, you know, angry reactions. And that was uh-huh. enjoyable. On the right, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely got from the people who I think get the issues best to my mind, because again, there's so many shades within the new right. So um, the people who get the issues at a granular economic level received it well. I think the others, I did probably notice a few who I would have expected to tweet it out, but didn't tweet it because they made be, maybe sensed that the, critic, the piece was critical of them and they were probably right in that suspicion. Mm. Well, it's interesting. And just lastly, I mean, uh, I want to talk about Compact Magazine, which I'm really enjoying and about that project, which is really um, kind of attacking both the left and the right and attacking elitism. New York Times titled its story on Compact's debut, Two Religious Conservatives and a Marxist Walk into a Journal. How do you define the Compact project? I mean, you said it well. Um, we describe our, our subtitle is a radical American journal, and that packs a lot of different things. But the main thing is that we, we think that that there's nothing wrong with being radical, that it's not the same as being an extremist. The radical in its sort of Latin root means to go to the root of something. And we think that although, you know, our contributors come from left and right, and you can see that in the masthead, there's this shared agreement that there is an important nexus between um, culture and material questions, and that um, that nexus is often neglected, especially our right-wing contributors are ones who are sort of, including that piece that I just mentioned by myself, we are, in a way, we're badgering, we're we're hounding the right by, by saying, you, you know, you keep politics at the level of culture, and that never gets to, um, you know, this material substrate upon which culture rests. So we're not like a vulgar Marxist where every cultural phenomenon is reduced to a particular historical moment and the relations and mode of production at the time. I mean, that's, um, I, I don't think, I think that's, that's not an accurate picture of, of ideas and culture. These things have their own inner integrity and logic, but there is some connection between them. And so and we want to draw out that connection. We wanna be at that nexus. Um, and that, that means that pits us against both, you know, the lifestyle left, which you alluded to. It's actually a term from Zara uh, uh, Wagenek, the, the leader of, the former leader, one of the former leaders of Germany's left party who wrote, recently wrote a book basically criticizing the left for being obsessed with issues of, with like language policing and issues of identity at the expense of kind of a universalistic, solidaristic message. But it also goes against the right insofar as the right laments, you know, 
oh, families aren't forming. Oh, people aren't getting married. Oh, church attendance rates are down. But it never says, well, what, what role could our economy have in mm -hmm. conditions in which people are like that? They never get to that question and we want to get to that question. So interesting. Well, I will be watching with much interest and I appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tara. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. <laughs>